Welcome to the Strata Leadership Show, a podcast designed to help you gain clarity, lead effectively, and drive results for yourself, your team, and your organization. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Miller. Today, I'd like to welcome to the show someone that I've known for a handful of years and someone that I just, from the beginning, really had just a great deal of respect for, and that has only grown over time. Today, we have my friend that's going to be joining us, Dr. Ryan Brown. Uh, Welcome to the show, Ryan. Thanks, Nathan. It's great to be with you. So Ryan or or Dr. Brown, either one fits him. He's the kind that, uh, you know, is comfortable with whatever, but he is someone that I, I, I just call him Dr. Brown because he's the kind of person that when you, when I talk to him, I think this guy's a lot smarter than me. And he is the managing director for measurement at the Door Institute at Rice University. And I just love this guy because he's the kind of person that can sit down with the most sincere academic and, and have a great discussion with them and then turn around and talk to a practitioner like me and makes both of us feel very welcome and heard. And so I'm just so glad that he's with us today. So Dr. Brown, how is life in Houston today? Well, life in Houston is challenging, like it is all over, I suppose. Our management of the COVID epidemic has been about like it has been in other places, maybe a little worse than some. And so it's a challenging time to be an American. It's a challenging time to be a leader in America, but it's also an exciting time. And it's especially exciting for me to get to be a part of an institute whose sole mission is to make more and better leaders. So I actually feel challenged, but I also feel inspired when I get up every day saying, all right, these are real problems and we need real and better leaders to help solve them. Well, if anything, what's happened during the the pandemic, what's happened with the social unrest or some would even call social progress, some of the things that have been happening it has underscored the significance of having leaders who are prepared to make a difference. And so you, you referenced it a little bit, and I hope you will feel comfortable referencing it throughout our time today, because I think what you're doing at the Door Institute there at Rice is among the most creative and innovative things that I'm seeing right now in higher education. Could you tell us a little bit about the Door Institute? I would love to. The Door Institute, started back in the summer of 2015 at Rice University. And its mission was simply to help Rice students to develop their capacity to lead. And since its initial launching, we've actually expanded that mission a bit to include helping to elevate the practice of leader development throughout all of higher education. So we have an internal to the university component to our mission and an external component to our mission. And I just find, I find both of those components to be really inspiring. But the second component, the external component, I think is especially inspiring because the idea that we could be at the forefront of what I hope will become a movement in higher education is, um, it's kind of profound to me. So it's a real honor to be a, a part of the Institute, to watch it grow, to help it grow over the years. We initially started out working with a handful of students in a a small pilot program designed to see if the practice of professional leadership coaching might work in a college environment. So this is a practice that's very common in the business world, working with 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds in various 
you know, management or executive leadership roles. But could we do the same sort of thing for 18-year-olds, for 19-year-olds, and help them move meaningfully on their, their journey as emerging leaders? So it began as a small pilot program. We've now worked the, this year's graduating senior class of undergrads. We will have worked with close to 40% of them over the last four years in a variety of programs, not just leadership coaching. But it's been exciting to watch that growth and to now have some expansion into, into other universities and people that are joining us in this movement to help really take the process of developing college students as leaders much more seriously and essentially to professionalize it. So it's been really fun to watch. Well, you've had a pretty long history working with universities. Let's go a little bit farther back. Tell us about where, where you grew up. I grew up in a small, affluent community outside of Birmingham, Alabama. It was a nice community in many ways. Like I said, it was affluent, a lot of privileges afforded to me that I wasn't entirely aware of at the time. I really had, had no idea what I was missing living in that community where basically everybody looked like me. There was hardly a person of color to be found in the entire city that I grew up in, even though, as I said, we were right outside Birmingham, Alabama. And I, I later came to realize that that was not an accident, that my town had been created in the 1950s as a response to Supreme Court decisions forcing schools to integrate. A group of people in Birmingham decided they didn't like that, and so they, they created a whole new town where they wouldn't have to integrate because nobody who wasn't white would be living there, and they found ways of making sure that that was true. So I grew up in this community really oblivious to these sorts of historical factors until I guess I was a freshman in high school. I read a book called Black Like Me by a white journalist named John Howard Griffin, who in the 1960s traveled around the South after medically altering his skin tone. So he looked black and, and he got an insider view of what it was like to be a black man in Alabama and Mississippi at that time period. And so for me, as, as, a, as another white young man in the South in Alabama, I got to have his perspective and his experience as an outsider posing as an insider in that community. And it really was eye-opening for me. I think in talking about that book and the experience of reading it with, with my classmates, it was also eye-opening uh, in the sense that I admitted after reading that book that I had become aware of some of my own biases and even prejudices. And the shocked response from my classmates was really noteworthy because none of them were biased, none of them were prejudiced, even though they didn't know any black people <laughs> other mm -hmm. than maybe their housekeeper. Uh, several of them mentioned, that, oh, I, I have a black housekeeper, I'm not prejudiced. So, so seeing that response from people who grew up in the most privileged community imaginable and the utter, utter denial of any form of privilege or bias was really noteworthy. And I think indirectly, one of the things that I learned from that book was that if you want to understand what's true, you can't just rely on your own experience or your own intuition. You've got to have some data. So there's, a, I think, an important sense in which that book 
laid a, a foundation for me in becoming a social scientist and getting interested in topics of like stereotyping and prejudice and bias, but more broadly in this idea of, of the importance of the scientific method for understanding the human experience and shedding light on what's really going on beyond what we can know just from our, our own intuitions. So you finished up in high school where you were a pole vaulter, you were a runner, you were obviously someone who took your academics very seriously. And then you go from that spot, Birmingham, which for many people, Birmingham, Montgomery, these are the, these are some of the most important places where you started seeing some shifts in how people thought about racism. And so you start discovering this about your community. You start thinking about your future. And so you go from there to Rice as a student. Why did you choose to be a psychology major? Well, I went to Rice thinking I was going to be an engineer like my dad. But it only took me about a year to find out that although I loved math and science, my heart was not in the field of engineering. So I discovered psychology as I began to explore different majors. I basically took a little bit of everything, fell in love with psychology. And then within the field of psychology, I found social psychology, which for social psychology, the topics like stereotyping and prejudice and bias, they've been bread and butter topics really since the 1930s, 1940s, since the founding of the field. And so I, I think that probably played a role in, in my interest in this field that I've come to love. From Rice, I went on and got my master's, my PhD from the University of Texas at Austin, where I worked with a whole bunch of different faculty members, Dan Gilbert, Bob Josephs, Bill Swan, Jamie Pennebaker, all kinds of very different, very creative thinkers, which I think really solidified my love for the field, but it also was great for me because it exposed me to a wide variety of topics and literatures within the field of social psychology and a lot of really different approaches to understanding the human experience as a social psychologist. I didn't know it at the time, but that breadth of experience, that breadth of creative, curious thinkers would wind up really serving me well in my career as a social scientist as I went on to study lots and lots of different topics within the field of social psychology and eventually wind up back at Rice University working at the Door Institute, where my job is to measure all these different subtle, sometimes not so subtle, but sometimes very subtle aspects of growth among emerging leaders. And so that breadth of experience that I got all the way back into graduate school has really been important to me as a social scientist. Well, it's a special thing to be invited back to your alma mater. And I'm so grateful that you had the chance and that it worked for you to be able to do that. You talked about being a social scientist, and that was a path that I'm assuming you just didn't have a bunch of friends from back home that you could talk to about their path to becoming a social scientist. So if you could go back and you, you look back at your career, what is one thing you, you wished you had known when you were beginning down that path, whether it was in a PhD program, getting into some of these other areas? Looking back on it, what's something that you wished you had known? That's a great question. I think I always struggled, for a long time I struggled with the fact that as a social scientist, I was interested in so many different topics, trying to understand the human experience from lots of different angles. And I, and I always struggled with 
the idea that I, I wasn't an expert in any one particular thing, which is as an academic, that's the norm that you become an expert in a very, very narrow field within your discipline. And I just never wanted to do that. I kept thinking, oh, that's an interesting topic. Let's study that. Oh, that's an interesting topic too. Let's study that. For me, the social sciences are not so much centered on one particular set of theories or paradigms, but really just social psychology as a field is an approach. It's the idea that we can use the scientific method to understand maybe not all, but a great deal of the human experience from thoughts to emotions to behaviors when we're all by ourselves in a room or when we're in a crowd, when we're with our spouse. I mean, all these are domains in which we exist and which we exhibit patterns of thoughts and feelings and behaviors. And so you can apply the scientific method to understanding those. And I think, I wish I'd known, so I could have just let myself off the hook a bit. I wish I'd known that it was okay to be a generalist like that, to just be curious about new ways of understanding the human experience and be okay with that. But I, I think for a long time, I felt like I was missing something by not specializing in one particular niche area. I really appreciate you saying that because I find a lot of people really do struggle with that idea of being a generalist, that that interdisciplinary, in essence, approach ultimately can really position you well to do some great things in your field. But as you're coming up and you're watching your colleagues move forward because they're laser focused on something, you can feel like you're doing it wrong. And I really do appreciate that. Earlier, you mentioned that the book Black Like Me, which I also read in high school, and I'm glad to meet the other person who read that in high school. Uh, I, I have found that book to be profoundly helpful way back then, and I haven't met many people who have actually read that book. But you mentioned being able to see another world through, through a book, and then you, you start seeing other ways of being able to see the world and experience the world. But for a lot of people, that also involves uh, another person, like a, a mentor, and you mentioned several professors. When you look back in your life and you think about people who've made an impact on who you would become as a leader, who are some of those people that might have been influential with you serving in that way? Maybe they didn't even know it, but they were providing a mentoring uh, role in your life, you know, to help you think through who you wanted to be. Do you have anybody that comes to mind? I do. I think two people in particular come to mind in that regard at very different points in my career. So a guy named Dan Gilbert is a social psychologist. And I read some of his work as an undergrad when I was at Rice. And I think that was his research is really what pushed me over the edge and made me decide I, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to be when I grow up. I want to be somebody like him because he's so creative He's prolific and a fantastic writer, but it's his creativity that really attracted me to the field of social psychology. So I went to the University of Texas to study with him. He's now at Harvard, uh, has had just a fantastic career and continues to be one of the most creative people in the entire field. So I think he was a very early influence on me in just becoming a social psychologist. And then later in my career, I spent many years at the University of Oklahoma as a professor of psychology. And toward the end of my time there, I met a guy named Kyle Harper, who I think you know as well. He's now the provost at OU, although he wasn't at the time. And 
he had a really important impact on me as well. Uh, at, at that time, I was kind of a typical professor. I lived in my office, uh, out of which I did all the important work of my life, which was to teach my classes and to do my research. And that's what I was trained to do. Keep your head down. Don't cause any trouble. Do your thing and do it well. And in meeting Kyle Harper, I, I met somebody who was an outstanding scholar in his own field, but who really liked to ask very big, annoying questions like, what are we doing here? And should we be doing this a really totally different way? So he was heavily involved in revamping OU's admissions policy, the whole way in which they bring students into the university. And during that process, he realized, okay, the characteristics that we're looking for in students to come to OU are great, but what are we doing after they get here to help them to develop those characteristics further? And he looked around and he said, we're really not doing anything, at least nothing very purposeful or intentional. So let's change that. And so that was about the time that I got to know him and together with Nicole Campbell and Linda Zagzewski, and several other people, we co-founded the Institute for the Study of Human Flourishing, which had kind of a scholarly component and also a very practical component of trying to help OU students to develop themselves, to develop their character as human beings and Americans and, you know, members of a free republic. And so it was a, it was a great time for me to expand my view of what it meant to be an academic and to ask big annoying questions like, why are we here and what's the purpose of higher education? And I learned that it was okay to do that, I think from Kyle Harper more than anybody else. So those are probably the two individuals who really stand out to me as having a trajectory changing impact on my life and my career. Kyle is a, is a special leader, but I, you know, he's one of those people, you know, he got master's and PhD at Harvard and became the provost at University of Oklahoma in his mid-30s, and he speaks or writes in six or seven different languages, and he's an incredible scholar. And what's even worse, he's handsome, he's athletic, and a humble and good human. <laughs> so he's one of those people that you just hate because he's just a great person and, and is so good at everything that he does. I, I really appreciate you giving him that shout out. Well, it's really true. And in social psychology, one of the things that we study is social comparison. <clears throat> and we have what we call downward and upward social comparisons. And they're exactly what they sound like. A downward social comparison is when you compare yourself to somebody who's worse off than you. And one of the benefits of that is that you feel better about yourself. As a friend of mine used to say, when you're, if you're feeling really bad about yourself, just go to the mall. Just go to the mall. That's where the average person is. And you're, and you're going to feel better by the end of the day. When you hang out with Kyle Harper, you're constantly engaged in upward social comparisons. And so it can be a little intimidating, a little depressing, or it can be inspiring. And you decide, hey, that's what I want to be like when I grow up, even though he's younger than me. That's, that's what I want to be like when I grow up. I would constantly say to myself, interacting with him. And so uh, he really is a great, inspiring guy in Oklahoma. The state, but certainly the university, are, are really lucky to have him. Well, I think it's funny. The first time I got to spend time with him, it was at a leadership retreat that lasted for a couple of days where I was doing some facilitation. And so I go, we go for a hike and I'm hiking there with uh, Kyle. And I don't know Kyle from anywhere. I, I'm, we're just hanging out. And uh, 
he was talking about some of the the stuff that you you just mentioned. And he said, well, you know, I went to school up in the Northeast and different, and he never would say some of those things that other people would be so anxious to say. And I just love that humility about him. So looking at what you're doing with your profession and your career right now, and I want to say to those who are listening in that are not in this field that I might be in or Dr. Brown in a, from a different perspective, what he is doing, Dr. Brown and the team there at the Door Institute, is really one of those special things. He is, um, he really is researching and thinking about something that I believe has the capacity for changing how uh, we, we, we do education as we go forward. And so in your observations and even in your TEDx talk, which I enjoyed listening to, oh, you're you trying to watch my talk. <laughs> I was and so, wondering who that uh, was. It was really well done. I actually uh, found it to be fantastic and I would recommend it. So those of you listening in, check out Ryan Brown's TEDx talk because it's just full of great content. But you talked in that about some of the characteristics that you had observed that leaders should possess, that what people are looking for from them, and then maybe even some of your own thoughts about that. But what are some of the characteristics that you think that leaders should possess and even trying to look ahead a little bit and trying to anticipate what the future might hold, what are some of the characteristics that you think leaders will need to possess in the future? Well, there's been a lot said about that, a lot written about that, a lot of research on that topic. So none of my insights on it are even remotely original. Let me just be really upfront about that. But as I have observed leaders and read research about leadership and the characteristics that distinguish great leaders from mediocre ones, a couple of things stand out. One is sort of an understanding of what it means to be a leader, first of all. I think great leaders are those who understand that first and foremost, their role is to steward a mission and shepherd a people. So leaders who are purposeful, who can articulate what their purpose is, what their mission is that they're leading, have a leg up on other leaders who can't. They fundamentally understand that their job is not to do everything, but it is to steward that mission and make sure that their group, their team, their organization is equipped and oriented and constantly reoriented toward achieving that mission. And secondly, that they're shepherding a people. So as I said, a leader's job isn't to do everything. It's to make sure that the mission is achieved. And that's almost always going to require a lot of different hands and a lot of different minds and a lot of different hearts And so keeping in mind that to achieve the mission, you've got to shepherd your people well. You've got to take care of them. You've got to understand them and know them. And they need to trust you. And you need to trust them. That's a complicated social dynamic. But understanding that those are really the two core elements of your role as a leader, stewarding the mission and shepherding the people. And if you get that, if you understand that, then you're much farther down the road than other leaders. So part of it's understanding But I think at the level of individual characteristics, if I had to choose just one, I'd probably push back and say, I don't want to choose just one. I want to choose several. (laughs) If I had to choose just one, though, I'd probably say that it's humility. And I talked about this a little bit in my TED Talk. A lot of us have this implicit belief that the best leaders are always the most self-confident people in the room. And sometimes that's true. And And it it's hard to imagine following a leader who's utterly lacking in self-confidence. 
However, there are a lot of people who are really self-confident, but they make terrible leaders because essentially they're narcissists. So there's a healthy sense of self-confidence that springs from a sense of psychological security. And then there's an unhealthy sense of self-confidence, which springs from insecurity and that characterizes narcissists, whether they're leaders or not. And there are plenty of leaders who are narcissistic. So what we're seeing in research, mostly over the last 10 years or so, is that really effective leaders tend to be moderately confident, but excessively humble. There are people like Kyle Harper that we were talking about earlier, who, who understand that, that their job is not to be the center of everything, be uh, the boss of everything, be in charge of everything and have all the right answers and know the, know the solutions to every problem. There are people who are there to, again, steward a mission and shepherd a people. They don't have to have all the answers and they don't, and they know it. And so as a result of that, they will seek wise input from other people, from trustworthy people, from experts who know things that they don't know. They'll ask really good questions and they'll listen to the answers. So they don't just ask questions and seek advice to make a good show of things. They really wanna know, what do you think, Nathan? What do you think is the problem here? You have an expertise that I don't have in this area. What do you think we should do? And understanding their own strengths and weaknesses, their own limitations, and just the fact that those limitations are okay because all leaders have them and the best leaders are ones who know that they have them so they can lead more effectively. I love that. When I was in my 30s, I had been named as an executive at a small university and I was working with the president and we had a phone call with the chairman of the board, which was unusual for for me to be on a call like that with the president. And the chairman of the board had asked a, a question that was not that complicated, but I really didn't have a great answer. And I was really nervous and I was trying to act like I had an answer and I really didn't have an answer. And it was pretty obvious that I didn't have an answer. And then we finished the phone call. And the president very gently said, you know, Nathan, one of the things that I've noticed is that sometimes you don't have the, the answer, but you feel like you're supposed to have an answer. And it is really okay to say, you know, I don't know. Let me um, get back to you on that. And I thought that was a gift that stung a bit at the time, to be honest with you, sure. because I knew that I had not done a good job. And I knew that I had didn't have a lot of at bats, you know, it wasn't like I got to have that kind of conversation a lot. And I was so grateful for that, just to say that it's okay to say that you don't know the answer. And I felt like I was given permission then to say, I don't know. And I have not had anybody offended by that, but I have had some bridges burned by acting as if I had an answer when I didn't. So I really appreciate the insight that you, you're providing there. You know, right now the need for leadership is so profound but people are so polarized. There's got, we've got so much going on. If you were looking at the challenges that leaders are facing today, what would you say would be some of the biggest challenges that leaders are confronted with now? Well, I think looking around at the fracturing of American society, it's easy to point to external social factors as being the biggest challenge. And I think, sure, why not? I mean, there, there are some huge ones that are just in our culture, in our society at large, you know, misinformation, the lack of a consistent understanding of what truth means, uh, how we determine what truth is. I mean, these, are, these are pretty fundamental challenges. And if we're not able as a society to make some progress 
on our understanding of these sorts of things and come together, we will not succeed as a society. But I can't help wondering if an equally large, equally fundamental challenge is more subtle than the stuff that we see when we turn on the news, no matter what station you look at, uh, no matter where you get your news from. And what I'm thinking of is fundamentally our understanding of what it means to lead, what it means to be a leader. And something that you alluded to a moment ago that, that I've thought about a lot as well and actually gathered a little bit of data on over time, this idea that real leaders or great leaders are just naturally that way, that great leaders are born and not made, I think is, is a really pernicious and important fallacy that many people believe without knowing that they believe it. I think for a long time, I believed it without ever really articulating it. And, and because of that belief, I was oriented subtly to trying to prove that I was one of the leaders. I, was, I had it, that special leadership quality that you're just born with or you're not. Not realizing, again, that's what I believed or thought, but it nonetheless affected my behaviors as a leader and some of my, some of my failures as a leader as well. So I think if we understood that great leaders are created from experience and not just time as you know time in the role that's not necessarily going to help you to grow as a leader it might and maybe it's necessary but it's absolutely not sufficient i think it was john dewey who said people really don't learn from experience they learn from reflecting on experience so experience alone is not enough but with experience with reflection with intentional development efforts you can grow as a leader. And in fact, that's the only way that anyone ever becomes an effective leader. They're not just born with it. It doesn't come prepackaged. So if we understood that better, then I think we'd lead more effectively and we would have more and better leaders in the world. I love that. And I also love that because it gives educators and coaches and band directors and all the people who influence young people first because they're going to be influencing them for their entire lives but they influence them at those pivotal moments because they could look at them differently that this is not who has it and who doesn't have it we might be gauging what they have now and then we're trying to help them cultivate what they have so i'm able to look at everybody as someone who has that potential and that capacity so you are part of a team that just wrote a book that just came out that is really focusing in on some of the things you mentioned earlier about providing more of that scientific approach to coaching to even to college students and beyond to help them think through their goals, their future, things like that. And then to really consider the future of higher education with that as well. Could you tell us a little bit about your book that just came out and give us some insights into uh, what that's about? I'd love to. The name of the book is Leadership Reckoning. Can higher education develop the leaders we need? And we pose that as a question with the belief that higher education is capable of developing the leaders that we need, but capacity is not enough. You also have to have a plan and the plan has to be effective and then you have to actually implement the plan. So in the book, we talk about the state of leader development in higher education and just the kind of embarrassing fact that most colleges and universities talk about how developing leaders for society is part of their mission. They might actually have it in their mission statement. It certainly shows up in their pamphlets and recruiting materials and TV commercials. 
So it's a common trope, but the question is, okay, if that's really important to us, what are we doing about it? And so we, at the Door Institute, we were, our whole purpose was to help Rice University do this, to be more intentional and more effective in developing students as leaders. But we began to look around at other universities and do some research on what other people were doing, partly initially because we just wanted to learn from the best and not pretend that we could come up with all the best answers ourselves. Let's figure out what everybody else is doing and take the best and adapt it and just copy it. And what we found as we went after different schools, some of them were Ivy League schools, others were state schools, but somehow they'd shown up on somebody's list of great places to grow as a leader. And what we found is, first of all, there was nobody in charge of leader development. There's no vice president for leader development at any school we ever talked to. I assume that you're familiar with the Carrie Underwood song, Jesus Take the Wheel. So that, that song is fundamentally about kind of an existential posture of surrendering to a higher power. But, but in writing this book, I periodically would hum the chorus of that song to myself because I'm thinking, well, Jesus take the wheel because nobody else is holding on to it. There is, the car's moving, it's driving down the highway, but nobody's driving it. And so that's really scary. It's not a, it's not a self-driving Uber car. It's just, it's a regular old car and nobody's hands are on the wheel. So how likely are we to be successful at developing students as leaders if there's nobody centrally in charge? And when there are efforts at a college or university to develop students, nobody actually has any idea whether what they're doing is effective mm. because they never measure their outcomes. That's my only role at the Door Institute, besides entertaining the office, I suppose, uh, with my wit and charm. Um, my only job is to evaluate what we do, to measure empirically the impact of our work, and to announce our successes and failures. And the point of that, even when we fail, we consider it a success because now we know, hey, let's not keep doing that. Let's not keep throwing money at that venture unless we change it and then evaluate it again. Let's get rid of it. Let's do something that works because there's plenty that does work. And when we find what works, we'll keep doing that. When we find what doesn't work, we'll stop or we'll change it. And nobody else seems to do that. It's not rocket science. Every college and university in the country has the in-house talent to do that kind of thing, but nobody seems to do it. So you get a lot of well-meaning, good intentions, people who want to do well and maybe love students and love the idea of student development, but they don't have the training to develop students as leaders. They don't use professional evidence-based practices. They don't measure their outcomes. So we just assume then that it's all working. I mean, that seems crazy, but that's exactly what we do. And so the book points out that's the state of the field in higher education and we need to do better. So then the rest of the book, after pointing out the emperor has no clothes, essentially describes a process of what it might look like to do a better job and from a principal perspective, not a really prescriptive, hey, you've got to do it exactly like we do it because we don't do it all right. We don't have all the answers. We don't get it all right. But in principle, we lay out a process for how schools might approach this idea of leader development to be more effective. So for those who are listening in from different universities and, and colleges and et cetera, the book is called Leadership Reckoning, and you need to get this book. Think about how your campus would feel different being able to have 10, 20, 30, 50 more equipped leaders, students who are serious about being able to serve others through leadership, what that could mean for your campus. So I hope you'll pick up Leadership Reckoning. 
I know Dr. Brown, I know that the work that they are doing is something that is not only heartfelt, it is scientifically based. And this is an important work, but it's one of those things where it's kind of a niche market and there's not going to be a ton of people perhaps going out and buying the book. I hope that there will be a ton, but it's the people who will read this will have the ability to impact a much larger group. And so go get that book, Leadership Reckoning. It's one that is definitely worth your time to read and to contemplate what's in that book. So go check it out, Leadership Reckoning. Dr. Brown, we are so thankful for your time today. I know your time is extremely valuable and it just means a lot to us. I love how much you love your craft and how much you love the students and how deeply held you have this heart of, of passion, of wanting to help people flourish to have better lives. And so it is an honor for us to have you on the show today. Thank you very much for being a part of our show. Nathan, such a pleasure. I always love to talk to you. Well, the idea is that we are not just getting through life. We are finding uh, our way. We are uh, reaching out to other people. We are connecting. But it is the goal of leaders to make a difference, to set the tone and set the pace. And in times like this, it's so important to know that courage is contagious and that the small actions of one person can make the difference in the lives of many. So today, it's your responsibility as a leader to set the pace and set the tone. Thank you for listening in at the Strata Leadership Show podcast. Have a great day.